Pick three bureaucracies in particular time spans in which you would most like to be an employee of or like a fly on the wall at embedded reporter. <laughs> what a great question. <laughs> Adam Tews is an economic historian and professor at Columbia. Our guest host this week is Matt Klein, columnist at Barron's and the author of the recent Trade Wars Are Class Wars. Matt, why don't you bring it back to the 1920s? Going back to the deluge, I think the sort of popular narrative is that the 1920s, the post-World War I regime was incredibly unstable and was bound to break down. And your argument essentially is that it's completely wrong. It was incredibly stable. And if you look at what people thought at the time, it was remarkably durable and took a very unusual combination of circumstances to even put it under threat. And then even then, the challenger powers basically, you know, with the exception of the USSR, didn't really end up any better off than they were in breaking mm-hmm. this Anglo-American dominance. And Thinking about you know the theme of, of this podcast and like where we are now, does that suggest what, what what would you take away from this about thinking about the durability of post nineteen ninety one world order where the U S is in and to a lesser extent sort of the U S Europe and Japan are predominant and you know how should we think about that in the context of sort of U S China competition and people thinking about one displacing the other because it mm-hmm. seems if you take this nineteen twenties analogy seriously and maybe we shouldn't but that it suggests like you basically would have to have some kind of extreme kind of series of, of crises and areas in the US and even then probably wouldn't really change that much necessarily. Oh, I think it would be unwise to draw that conclusion. That that wouldn't be where I would go. I think your your it's a wonderful summary of of the of 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 indeed the main argument of, of the Deluge book, which was a sort of an argument with the German theorist Carl Schmidt uh, and other German analysts of the interwar conjuncture who insisted precisely as you said that the problem was not, if you like, that you know liberal internationalism and the League of Nations was weak. It was the problem was that it was hypocritical. In other words, it didn't admit what its actual strength was and was shamefaced about the propensity and the capacity for violence that actually underpinned it. Which, when Imperial Japan, Fascist Italy, and Nazi Germany made the challenge, revealed itself. And the scale, in a sense, for me, of course, it was the development of an argument out of my book about Nazi Germany. Why did Hitler have to try as hard as he did? Because this is not a conventional, familiar sort of arms race. This is precisely a massively unstable tumbling forward into a completely unstable armaments economy. Why were they forced to make that kind of effort? Because they understand the threat that they're up, the challenge that they're up against. I would, uh, I think, you know, the an interest in the 1920s revived in the 1990s amongst historians, amongst international historians, because we were, in a sense, thinking about the analogies between the new unipolar order that came to take shape after the end of the Cold War, uh, which was inflected in various ways with ideologies of liberal internationalism that did, in the American case, trace back to the Wilsonian moment, and if one took a broader view, had a lineage that also ran on the British side by way of liberal internationalists, all the way back to your hero, uh, the hero of uh, the intellectual hero, Matt, of your book with Michael uh, Hobson, who was you know, a brilliant analyst of the tensions within global capitalism of the late 19th century that he thought could be resolved by way of intelligent management, unlike Lenin, who saw them as a kind of inevitable mechanism for self-destruction. So all of that was there, and that's what drew folks like myself into thinking about this. It drew folks like Neil Ferguson into thinking about it too from the other side, in other words, as a celebrant of a muscular, organising, imperial, hegemonic power. But I would argue that, and you know, over the course of the, the last couple of decades, I've become ever more 
transfixed and fascinated by what I take to be the world historic transition that we're witnessing. Because China's, China's not the Soviet Union. China's not fascist Italy. China's not Germany. China is a, a problem of a completely problem, you know, posed from the Western side. That's even the wrong way of talking about. China's a phenomenon. The growth of China is a phenomenon that, that, that dwarfs all of those previous developments and has to be viewed on the time frame that was laid out for us by the economic data of somebody like Angus Madison, who shows us those, you know, you probably, you and your listeners will no doubt have all seen these data of global GDP all the way back to the birth of Christ. And all the way through the beginning of the 19th century, the Asian economies actually dominate once you adjust GDP by purchasing power parity and so on. And it is what we're seeing is the grand swing back to the economy increasingly centered on, on Asia and East Asia with the two great post-colonial nation states. India is a post-colonial nation state and China is something even more complicated than that as potential dominant actors in that story. So I, I don't, I, I think this is a challenge that is much more serious. And I quite like Larry Summers where he simply said, look, the question really is whether there's any political force in the United States that's, that's capable of really reckoning with the scale of this world historic shift, which in the end, quite reasonably and on grounds which really can't be seriously you know, debate, the legitimacy of them can't really be questioned, will in the end lead to the supersession of America's dominant position. We will end up in some sort of multipolar order. And the question is whether there's any any political forces in the United States can really accept that kind of transition. It's tempting to say, is there anyone in the United States that could play the role of the British elite after World War One? But America's position of dominance was vastly greater than that enjoyed ever by the British. So the psychological, as it were, challenge of accepting this transition is, is far greater. And of course, in key respects, America remains an absolutely dominant player, most notably with regard to hard power and nuclear weapons and that, that entire domain, but also in certain respects with regard to its financial centrality. So I'd be very cautious about drawing a straight line. I, I, I'm very much a universal history guy rather than a cyclical history. So there is a connection in the sense that one thing grows out of the other. And in Deluge, after all, I spent a lot of time trying to position the history of the emergence of the Chinese Republic in the epoch that we normally think of as being about Europe, essentially, and the United States. So one of the things that that was really striking for me reading the Deluge was your description of what was going on in Russia in 1917. And mm. this idea that there really was a window for the transformation of Russia into some sort of liberal democratic society. They had essentially, I think, I think if I remember correctly, something like the, the most f- free election of, of any country in the world, I think at that time. Uh, largest I'm, single election. Large, yeah. Largest, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, that obviously didn't work out that way. And one of the arguments you make is essentially that this new regime just sacrificed its entire political capital by needlessly attacking Germany again. And then lots of people died and, and that created an appeal for the Bolsheviks. But I guess the question is that it seems like that was clearly a missed opportunity. Going back to 1991, it seems again, like there was a chance and maybe this is overstated, but maybe things in Russia could have, or former Soviet Union more broadly, could have turned out differently than they did. Is this a question of there were these genuine opportunities that were just missed and or is it or is there something more fundamental that keeps pulling this part of the world back towards the various forms of authoritarianism that we end up um, seeing a sort of general hostility to outsiders or is it really that the West ended up at crucial moments making these sort of key policy mistakes? I'm delighted that you highlight these aspects of the book because I guess what I was trying to highlight was on the one hand the story about the 
the enormous power of the Western alliance, the Entente, the British and French empires and the United States as their as their backer, which in a sense drives you to deterministic conclusions about the power of the economy. If you look at those Angus Madison's GDP data, that 1916 is the moment when the GDP of the continental United States exceeds that of the British Empire all in. So you add those two things up, you add the French Empire in, and you have, as it were, the answer as to why Germany loses World War I and why the post-war order takes the shape that it does. And then as a counterpoint to that, and for me, really a shocking discovery moving from being a historian of World War II to being a historian of World War I, is this dizzying contingency that we see played out in the period between 1917 and 1919, 1920, with a series of sort of pivotal moments. And I, and I, was, I, I still am, I think. I'm still, in, in my thinking about modern history, constantly torn between this you do have to call it a dialectic between forces of determinism on the one hand and then moments of decision on the other. And and there's something about modern history, and it's not, you know, it's not difficult to name it. It's something about the aggregation and the concentration of power in modern history, which creates on the one hand that, as it were, impression of inevitable telos, and on the other hand, also this extraordinary contingency in which decisions taken by very small groups of people, almost always men, do undeniably play havoc with what you might expect to be the the predictable course of events. And yes, indeed, there was this moment in 1917 when, you know, ships in the night, you know, the American president starts the year by saying he wants the war to end with a peace without victory. And then as a result of German aggression um, is dragged into a war to fight it to a victorious conclusion. Meanwhile, you know, within weeks of his declaration, the Russian revolution breaks out and the bunch of Russian revolutionaries come to power whose idea of how to end World War I would be you guessed it, peace without victory, (laughs) and find themselves then in the very difficult position of having no one to negotiate with because the Americans by that point are in the war, which causes them then to embark on this desperate effort to secure leverage for themselves within the wartime coalition by winning another battle against the central powers. It's easy to forget that the Russians actually won battles in World War I, and they've tended to win them against the Ottomans on one hand and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the dual monarchy on the other, the Habsburgs, not against the Germans. And this is the gamble that goes terribly wrong that summer. But it doesn't prevent them from making good on the democratic promise of the revolution that they do indeed hold for the constituent assembly. So the election that will decide the formation of the constitution under which then other elections will be held, it is the freest, it's the largest election held anywhere in the world up to that point. The American presidential election of the pre-war period, 1912, is a, is a minnow by comparison. And it does include women voters, peasant voters, millions of illiterate voters, And broadly speaking, I think we all agree that it was, if not entirely free, then broadly speaking, fair, because the outcome is what you'd expect. So I wanted to show before all of this is overwhelmed by the violence then of the Bolshevik seizure of power, this possibility opening up. And I do think that the failure of that moment of political experimentation, of course, combined with the extraordinary violence of the Soviet regime afterwards and World War II, deflects Russian history and the history of that region in a certain way. And a certain democratic possibility was foreclosed at that moment. I'm certainly not of the kind of disposition that says, well, then forever after, as it were, Russians and Belarusians and Ukrainians and the Balts and whoever else is condemned to various versions of authoritarianism. That's absurd uh, to argue. And you know, Belarusians demonstrating in their millions with extraordinary courage once again that, that, that you know, they don't accept that diagnosis. 
And you could make the same argument for Ukraine and for the Baltic states as well, not to mention many of the other Central Europeans. So there's no determinism here, but there's no doubt at all that that crisis, as it were, pivots European history in a really dramatic way. And the, and the, the force of the deluge argument was about that. I have not written the book. I mean, that, that I think you would like me to have written. Mary Sorotti has written the book and you should have her on your show. Like She's written the book about the decisions after 1989, which in various ways, I think, do prejudice the trajectory of Russia since then. And I don't think it's contentious to argue that someone like Putin is a product of the failures of Russia's development in the 1990s. And one could, in fact, insert Russia into your story, Matt, the the story that you've developed of the world, as it were, twisted in a funny way out of shape by the events of 1989. One of the reasons I love your book so much as a historian is that it's this very canny rewriting of the narrative of the aftermath of the Cold War and the collapse of communism. Because using Germany and China as you do, you show, as it were, the the weird, twisted consequences of that for America's position in the global economy. And Russia, after all, is is a non-trivial part of that same picture because it it tumbles towards crisis by 1999. It's an epic existential crisis. It comes back out of the other side of that on the commodity boom. And by 2007 is, if I'm not mistaken, the third largest holder of dollar reserves in the world. I think I'm right, aren't I? Uh, third or fourth? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's, yeah. So it's, it's not on the scale of China's surplus with the United States. Um, and it doesn't have the duration of the Saudi petrodollar regime that goes back all the way to the 1970s. But Russia's in that game and Russia is playing that game hard, right? They are, they are, as you would expect, hyper-conscious of the weird and twisted situation that they're in, in which they are effectively, to, to their minds, subsidizing America's increasingly aggressive expansionist military adventures. And that point is made. There's, a, there's an absolutely brilliant essay by a political scientist on the politics of the dollar in Russia in the 2000s. There's a particularly choice moment where... The, the the parliament passes a law outlawing not just the use of dollars for tax payments in Russia, but even accounting and mentions to the use of the dollar as a unit of account. And then Putin slips up in front of the parliament and, and you know, has to slap himself on the wrist and fine himself for accidentally referring to some budget numbers in the way in which every competent Russian technocrat did in the 90s, which is in dollar terms. And he says, oh, God, no, we're not in that world anymore. No. So it's very difficult. It's important to remember that, you know, Russia by the late 1990s was a, was a dollarized socioeconomic system, a, a nuclear armed state, which was basically operating using the American currency. So, Adam, another one of the uh, points that the deluge hits on is this um, diplomatic moment um, where you have the Treaty of Locarno, you have um, the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And at some sense, there does seem to be this aversion to at least within the sort of within the nations that uh, buy into it, an aversion for, you know, head-to-head conflict. So we had The Internationalist, which is a book about this sort of strain of of thinking and how it has um, played out over the subsequent hundred years. And I'm curious for your take on to what extent you think the principles of the Kellogg-Briand Pact have lived on past the 1920s. I think that the argument of that book is is an interesting one. The essential point that Serena Hathaway and Scott Shapiro are making in that book does to me deserve to be taken extremely seriously. And what I'm especially averse to is the kind of easy realist dismissal of international law 
and associated public opinion as just, you know, scraps of paper. I would self-identify as a liberal. And for anyone who who, who makes that kind of self-identification, scraps of paper matter. <laughs> they really matter. The question, of course, is what they're backed by and, and how they're inserted into broader systems of discipline, self-understanding and of culture. And in a very important way, you can clearly say that the Kellogg-Briand model failed. It has failed, as it were, to end violence. And in certain extreme cases, it has also failed, as it were, to eradicate regimes that were simply willing to flaunt any kind of norms and pursue aggressive war. And it, of course, hasn't stopped the use of coercion and violence for territorial adjustment all the way down to the struggles we see between China and India today or Ukraine. So it doesn't, at that level, you could say failure. But in other, in other really crucial respects, it has changed the game really quite fundamentally and had very dramatic consequences. It is the foundation for a very substantial part of the indictment at the Nuremberg trials, and not unreasonably so. Now, of course, you could say hypocrisy is involved because on the judge, you know, judge bench sat representatives of the Soviet Union that was involved with, the Nazi, with Nazi Germany in 1939 in undoing that order. But that doesn't, in principle, invalidate the fact that the Germans were being held to account, not just for shooting prisoners, but also for, for the crime of aggressive war. And it has changed quite fundamentally, I think, the way in which Western states think about War fighting. It doesn't stop them from doing it. There are loads of different contexts in which they do, um, but it forces them to think much harder about it, justify what they're doing. And it's a fact that there hasn't been a major head-on confrontation, as you put it, between any of the obvious Western powers. Now, the will, of course, there are a variety of different reasons why that is the case. But for me, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't invalidate or somehow render irrelevant Kellogg-Briand. Kellogg-Briand for me matters precisely because it in fact articulates and expresses the reality of that status quo, which the key signatures and initiators of that treaty had recognised in the 1920s. So for me, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a real principle. It's, it's not merely idealism as opposed to a, a realism which has no values. It is indeed you know, the realisation of a set of values and conversely the recognition within a set of values of a certain set of realities which, from the point of view of the major European states, when they're in their right minds, are clearly non, you know, they're not really up for discussion. France, Germany, Italy, the UK are not going to be in the business of fighting wars with each other. So coming to another one of your books, Wages of Destruction, which looks at the 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 Nazi Germany economy. Uh, a question for both of you. Is there anything we can learn from the Nazi economy which is illustrative of lessons for thinking about China today? I wouldn't go at it head on. I would go by way of political theory. And the person that I would go to is Neumann, who the German political theorist, social theorist, who actually taught at Columbia during the war and wrote an extraordinary book called Behemoth in which he described what happens to capitalist states when they get caught up in a logic which he took to be characteristic of the 20th century, which is uh, oligopolistic, monopolistic rule. It's in a sense a continuation of the narrative that somebody Hobson begins at the beginning of the 20th century that, that Matt and Michael Pettis pick up on. And what they do in their book in following Hobson is to diagnose 
the deformation, if you like, of liberal international structures, uh, uh, the international system and free trade that results from monopoly. And the result of that is protectionism and tariff wars and ultimately, in Hobson's view, of course, a race towards imperialist competition and war. And if you continue that line of thought and ask yourself, okay, so what does monopoly do and what do oligopolistic structures do to the domestic political structure? One set of consequences they have, as Matt and Michael show, is, is it distorts the income distribution, distorts demand, creates macroeconomic imbalances, but it also systematically subverts the legal system. It systematically subverts principles of representation. It begs the question of who has power and what the role of the state is in relation to those interests. Because uh, properly understood liberalism clearly isn't premised on the absence of the state. It's premised on a well-ordered set of relationships between individuals the law and various types of representation. And that structure is not necessarily robust, as we know only to if economic power becomes monolithic, if it becomes massive. And there are ways of taming that by way of corporatism, in which you have an organized representation of economic interests. But you can also imagine systems in which it become, can become a sort of destructive set of flywheels of extremely explosive dynamics of gigantic interest groups contending with each other more or less in an unmediated direct form, interest on interest. And I think, you know, a pessimist would say you've just described, you know, modern Western societies, modern Western economies. But I think you could also ask how useful that analytic might be for thinking about the situation in a highly complex polity, political economy like China, which, of course, didn't start out liberal. And as we, I think, increasingly are coming to terms with, is also unlikely to develop in a liberal direction. But it does seem to be characterized by a clash within the one-party state of different interests, of agglomerations of technology and capital, of different party factions. And it does seem to me that I would love for us to have a Neumann, Behemoth-style treatment of China. So I'm not saying that, as it were, the results would be the same, but it seems to me that that analytic would be profoundly helpful, certainly as you know, as an outsider, to, to try to understand what's going on there. And that would be, for me, the, you know, the... Yeah, I think that would actually be really a kind of a profitable exercise. I guess one thing I think is interesting, and this is something that, that Adam was just describing, is that you know the way that the Nazi economy worked was you know it could have been described as capitalist insofar as if you were a strict you know you know from what Stalin described it as part of the capitalist block insofar as you did have sort of private companies in a sense you did have concentrations of wealth that were outside of the formal structures of the state, and yet. There also was a very real sense, I think, in which these, you know, private enterprises and private capital weren't really independent of the state in the way they might have been in some other countries. And the extent to which the Nazis effectively, part of the way they were, I think, that Adam describes, able to, to marshal the resources the way they did was by essentially allying German big businesses to their project through a mixture of rewards and, and penalties and that integration of the party political objectives with the interests of these sort of quasi-private enterprises and, and elites, you can, I think, draw 
links there between the sort of structure of the modern Chinese economy as well. I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't want to draw the analogy too far, but I think that is an interesting parallel. And I think you can argue it's for similar political reasons insofar as you have a government where there are certainly plenty of different factions and competing interests within it that make for all mm. sorts of interesting politics that we can't really observe for the most part. But at the same time, I think it is also reasonable to say that the, you know, the way that the the party is able to drive economic activity, I think there's definitely some interesting analogies there. I would like to emphasize is that my reference to, to Franz Neumann was in a sense, it seems to me as Westerners on the outside faced with this extraordinarily complex entity or system of systems, what I want to emphasize was the sort of commonality of of confusion and perplexity. Like our categories don't fit very well. It's quite difficult to describe the Chinese regime in categories that make you know are at all familiar without reducing it hopelessly and just failing to recognize its complexity. And it's that position of puzzlement, if you like, that strikes me as analogous. It's not so much as it where I'm saying that China's Nazi Germany, but our problem from the outside in analyzing it, the fact that none of our categories seem to yeah. fit it very well, is what seems to me reminiscent of the difficulty that liberal analysts had in the 30s and 40s. And the smart analysts in the West in the 30s and 40s were not, as a result, radically othering Nazi Germany. They weren't either engaged in the crude Stalinist stereotypes of saying it's capitalist and you're capitalist, so basically you're just the same, which is you know, hopelessly reductive. And there is a version, as it were, of the left-wing analysis of China today, which is willing to say that, that it's just state capitalism and that's all there is to it. I don't find that position at all interesting. Rather, I, as it were, am curious to go back, in a sense, to read those struggles to make sense of Nazism from the outside. And Neumann was inside-outside because he was an emigre, as, a, you know, as, a, as an inspiration for thinking in similarly, you know, in open-ended and productive protein terms about China in the present, not as a template, but as an inspiration. Because I don't, like Matt saying, it's just not obvious to me that I, I, there's nothing I could read in the, in the West right now that really makes me feel that I fully understand the dynamics. The, sexually seems to help. I'm impressed by how far people can get when they dig into, you know, policy making. I was very interested, still am very interested, say, in energy policy questions. And it's clear that we can really go quite a long way using openly available Chinese sources in understanding the dynamic of competition between the coal energy people and the big oil companies and the new set of interests associated with renewable industry and renewable energy. That's very interesting. It seems to me that that kind of provides us with a keyhole for understanding yeah. dynamics. I have a show coming up in the next week or two with two folks who spend spent their entire careers looking at you know party documents trying to understand you know CCP, CCP intentions mm-hmm. and they have completely different conclusions about what all this stuff means this is not researching Nazi Germany in the 1950s when you can read everything and it will take very long or perhaps never where we are able to like really really disentangle what is actually going on in the interpersonal relationships within the Politburo which is for 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 not all things but for some things um absolutely essential to under, to really understanding what's going on and there are certain there are certain lessons i think we can learn in the sense that if we can't observe them then we you know or we get our observation of them is somewhat partial there are certain biases on our own part that we can sure. check and there are there are certain common habits of thought that you know that that i see 
recurring in American, you know, efforts to make sense of China. We, we saw them in like a knee-jerk form at the beginning of this year, like the Chernobyl moment kind of question, how rapidly that idea surfaced, which, you know, of all the analogies in all the world strikes me as like truly bizarre, like Wuhan, yeah. Chernobyl, nah, I don't really think so. Like, you know, does Xi's regime now look like, you know, the Soviet Union in 1986? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Like, you know, and nevertheless, that was it was very compelling and apparently quite compelling to people inside China as well who were using, you know, the film review websites to leave little you know, brave enough to leave comments there. Those sorts of impulses in our own mindset, I think we need to be very conscious of and try to read against the grain of our own desire to see certain neat conclusions and certain neat storylines acted out. Yoshu, the anonymous guy who wrote that review of Wages of Destruction, sent me this question. He said that you argue Hitler went to war with an inadequate industrial base, and people assume that she won't attempt uh, to take over Taiwan until he's confident of victory. Given what you know about the incentive facing Hitler, do you think there's anything we can learn about how she is thinking about Taiwan? I think the much closer analogy is surely to Stalin. I mean, for me, the big contrast in 1939, and this isn't actually my point, this is the point made by the wonderful and you know vastly underrated and in fact in some ways defamed conservative historian Andreas Hilgruber in his magnificent uh, global history of strategy in the first phase of the war. There's a huge difference between Hitler and Stalin because Stalin believes confidently that time is on his side. Yeah. And the time horizon is everything in deciding whether or not, you know, the strategic window is open and how long it's open for. Whereas Hitler is a is Gnostic, right? Literally in a kind of theological sense. Hitler has no confidence at all that time is on his side. And he knows that from an economic point of view, the cards are indeed stacked against him. And the advantage that the Germans built up early on in the arms race is probably going to dwindle. And furthermore, he is possessed by the idea, as it were, that the conflict is insuperable, inescapable, that the world Jewish conspiracy is pressing in upon Germany, whether in the form of an actual hot war or whether by means of the Cold War pressures that he believes are the explanation for Germany's economic problems. There is really for him a way of reading Germany's dwindling foreign currency reserves as an index of the success of the Jewish effort to strangle the German economy. And you see this manifestly in his notorious speech on the 30th of January 1939, where he actually threatens, you know, that if a world war should break out, which in German terms means a war involving the British Empire and the United States, then it'll be the Jews of Europe that pay. This is the moment when he publicly announces the Holocaust. And the rest of that speech is all taken up with economic problems and shortages of foreign exchange. It's extraordinary. I don't see, and this is just one take, and it's really, you know, an amateurish external outsider's take. I don't see that level of time pressure and anxiety. I know people say that the Chinese think that time is not on their sides either and that in the end they're going to be overtaken by India or whatever, their population is aging. But the time clock runs over decades. That wasn't true for yeah. somebody like Hitler. I, you know, I, I would I acknowledge the relevance of the comparison only as providing a general analytic which suggests that the Chinese situation yeah. is radically well, different. It's interesting thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of like extreme Republican take on U.S.-China and how it almost echoes the clock mm-hmm. running out on the U.S. And, you know, we have to shut down Huawei. We have to oh, shut down a SMIC. Oh, yeah. uh, because the time is absolutely not on our side and every minute we have yeah. is yeah. wasting. Yeah. And the answer, of course, to this apocalypticism, which I agree is a very dangerous strand. And in the case of folks like Pompeo and other people who you know belong to the, the very underrated, I think, evangelical faction around the Trump administration, 
you know, they really do have a kind of end times possibility in their kind of cosmology. And that stuff is a, that's a dangerous thought pattern. You know, apparently Peter Navarro entirely sincerely believes that there is the possibility of a shooting war with China as a realistic prospect over the next couple of decades. That kind of thinking, you know, and again, like one can only judge this, I can only judge this from the outside. The serious analysts of the American team think that that kind of idea is there. That's dangerous stuff because clearly the job, as it were, is not to refuse a relative decline because that's necessary and legitimate and inevitable. The question is to code it as something other than end times. And this is, you know, this is the kind of German, you know, the, the farcical element amidst the German tragedy is that in 1945, they, not surprisingly, looking around them, are expecting Finis Germaniae, literally somehow like the final historic erasure of Germany. And we know that's absolutely yeah. not what happened. Right? You know, and it never needed to have happened. You know, Konrad Adenauer is older than Gustav Stresemann right? and presides over the resurrection of a Germany that turns out to be absolutely essential to the European balance of power and the European economy and everyone welcomes back and makes go and then rich. So it's this sort of apocalyptic thinking of a history that's going to end with some sort of big bang or some terrible, ghastly, discreditable whimper rather than just facing up to reality in which the world is different and changed and America's position is not what it was in 1945, which is not after all the end of the world. So I agree with that, with the, the, you know, the worry for me is more about the American side than it is about China, to be honest. That this isn't to, this is in no way to diminish the aggression that Beijing is clearly displaying. It's determination to resolve quote unquote the Hong Kong problem, and I think probably it's you know very earnest commitment also to in their terms find a new solution for Taiwan in the foreseeable future. So this isn't to underestimate the the seriousness of that intent on their part, but I don't think it's driven by a you know the insistent ticking clock sure. kind of logic. So who's the German legal theorist Schmidt and why is he having a bit of a renaissance nearly 100 years later in China today? It's one of the truly remarkable facts about, I think, the last 15 to 20 years of Chinese political thinking. And there is political thinking in China. It's worth saying this. There are people deeply intelligent, obviously brilliant political and legal theorists in China trying to articulate and make sense of the logic of this emerging power. And one of the sources that they go to, and this has emerged from the tireless work of many translators of recent Chinese political writing and international relations thought, is a German political theorist, legal theorist, Karl Schmidt. And he really had his heyday in the Weimar Republic, the 1920s, and then was one of the key legal minds behind the early history of the third. He was Goering's lawyer as, as the prime minister of Prussia. He provided one of the chief legal justifications for the overthrow of the Prussian government, which was a prelude to the Nazi seizure of power at a national level in Germany. He went on to be one of the most influential legal theorists of the Third Reich in the 1930s. And apart from his alignment with the party, which is true, say, of many German intellectuals in the period, he was also a flaming anti-Semite, so not above labelling colleagues with, you know, the name Judah and the statching yellow stars to bibliographies. A truly hateful anti-Semite, lived on deep into the 1970s or even maybe even the early 1980s. He grew to maybe he was 100, he just wouldn't die and became a kind of pivotal influence on German legal thought even after 1945. So he runs a sort of secret seminar and has been quite influential on German legal thought since. Why? Because 
he is, if you like, one of the most hard-nosed answers to liberalism and liberalism's cant. What he insists upon is understanding politics as a distinction between friend and foe, friend and enemy. He insists that legal orders have real foundations in space and in power, in the taking of a territory fundamentally, that they therefore also have limits and necessarily have limits, that they define insiders and outsiders, that structures which are truly comprehensive are threatened to emerge in the course of the 20th century. And he's one of the people that was very influential in me in writing Deluge because he understood the order that emerged out the end of World War I as a unipolar order, a kind of universal empire defined by the United States, but not simply as a peaceful empire, but as essentially the instantiation of the overweening power of America, the British Empire, of business. And he was one of the most coruscating and effective critics of the way in which liberalism disguises its power in morality and the logic of commerce. And having laid it out like that, I think you can see why Carl Schmitt has been attractive, not just for Chinese legal scholars, but for a variety of scholars, both in Europe and in the United States. There is a live, active Schmittianism in Harvard Law School around the figure of Adrian Vermeule, who's arguing essentially that to understand the actions of American government since 9-11, you have to be willing to understand the legitimate role for executive power in defining the enemies of the state and going after them. He is one of the people justifying the use of torture after 9-11, but also the emergency powers invoked by Ben Bernanke in 2008. You do that against the backdrop of a set of political commitments. This is the sort of moment of here I am and I can do no other. This is my politics and this is the political and legal regime which instantiates that. The left in Europe used this kind of critique as a way of unpicking the hypocrisy of liberal internationalism in the age of Clinton and the responsibility to protect and that discourse of global internationalism, which they, the left, read really as the updated version of 1920s internationalism. And for all of these reasons, I think you can immediately see why Chinese scholars seized on precisely this logic for thinking through the emergence of Chinese power in the context of what they would diagnose as American empire. And the first instance, as it were, the first instance and the first use you can make of Schmidt is to assert the necessity of politics and the absolute necessity of committing yourself to the project, some project, And the project, of course, they commit themselves to is the project of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. And from that law follows, not the other way around. We don't have a legal system and then, as it were, define the party within it. In fact, the appropriate way around is to define your norms and then follow a legal system from that. And the norms you pick are up to you. It could be liberal. It could could be those of the communists. But also, and in a more ironic twist, they also see in Schmidt a theorist of China's own potential empire. a a zone of influence and power that would create its own structures of incorporation, its own norms, given from China, defined by China, set and ultimately rooted in Chinese power, radiating out from East Asia, encompassing other states. And 
this too was was mitzvishan that on this basis you could found uh, an empire. And it's worth saying that that Schmidt is a failed figure. He starts out well in the Third Reich. He becomes one of the great exponents of what he calls Groß, you know, economics and Grossraum politi- politics, so large space. And as such, he's a he's a passionate advocate of the Hitler-Stalin pact, which conforms precisely to his sort of vision of the world, divided up between conceivably the German sphere, the Soviet sphere, the Japanese sphere, and the United States-British Empire sphere. And all of that, of course, collapses between 1940 and 1941, when it becomes obvious that Hitler's project is not actually compatible with that kind of that kind of a stable vision of the partition of the world into separate zones. And I think for the Schmittians, yeah, I know, but for the Schmittians in China right now, that's the question too, because in a sense for them, you know, um, one nation, two systems was precisely a kind of Schmittian vision of an overarching Chinese empire with the pluralism that's contained within that, safely contained within the acknowledgement fundamentally that this is about China under the leadership and the hegemony of the CCP, tolerating two systems. And of course, that isn't what's, yeah. At, at the end of the day, there are other logics that are more powerful than his logic. Absolutely. So the, 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 yeah, it's exactly that. Um, Adam, I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on the, the evolving Nazi rationale for labor camps and, and Xinjiang. To my mind, Xinjiang seems to fit much more squarely in the logic of sort of the Soviet gulag yeah. system than it does in this sort of exterminatory logic of national socialism. There is a there is an element of the Nazi concentration camp system, which is a forced labor camp system, but it was always ultimately genocidal in the literal physical sense. I don't I think there's every reason to think that the Chinese project of cultural transformation probably meets genocidal standards in Xinjiang. At least it goes a very long way in that direction. But it's not obvious that there is no there's no necessity for destruction through labor, which was understood by the Nazis, an absolutely core component of especially their incarceration, of course, of the Jewish population and their murder of the Jewish population. But also in the long run, very large slices of the Slav population of Eastern Europe as well. I don't see that logic being analogous. I do I do the, the logic, you know, the colonial logic, the settlement logic, the use of forced labor in an archipelago of forced camps for the purposes of political re-education and also infrastructural transformation. The history, after all, of the Xinjiang forced labor complex and the state-owned enterprises there goes all the way back at least to right, the Cultural Revolution, if not the late 50s. All of that, I think, fits much more closely the, the Chinese model. But again, I would, I would caution, and I say this as somebody who isn't a China you know, professional, against wanting to subsume China into someone else's, you know, archetype of what a forced labor regime or a genocidal regime looks like. That's, it seems to me there could just be a horrifying originality to what they're yeah. doing. And after all, the tech dimension of what China's able to do now with terms of surveillance is, you know, is, 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 is beyond the wildest dreams of any previous authoritarian sure. regime. Um, the apparent desire of the local government in Xinjiang to reduce the birth rate of the Uyghur population, I think is something to add as well, complicating the story of, you know, how we would characterize this one way or the other. Yeah, obviously shouldn't, you know, it's something that too easily slides out of consciousness, but the Chinese regime undertook 
what you know Foucauldians would call you know a, one of the most extraordinary grand gr- grotesque grandiose and also very violent biopolitical experiments in history which is the one child policy which and it you know it, it pursued that towards the hand population that it's then also capable of taking those kind of techniques and applying them to a resistant you know the Uyghurs or Tibetans or whatever Mongolians ultimately I think one could imagine is not I don't think surprising but it's the same toolkit right exactly. and, and in the 80s it was it was ferocious in its intrusiveness the monitoring of the monitoring of women's menstrual cycles forced abortions you know this is this stands alone no one's ever done that before <laughs> you know on that scale it's quite mind blowing and too easily i think consigned to the history books yeah, i mean of course this was you know this was this was yes, a exactly. this was a tech, this is a technocratic regime deciding that this is the best thing and then uh, getting a getting a whole and, yeah. um you know getting a whole bureau- bureaucracy and apparatus to to buy into it yeah some people tell us it's driven by what a bunch of people from the like rocket the, the aeronautics yeah. program and 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 people who came out of western inspired cybernetics thinking basically taking the you know the limits to growth diagnosis of the club of rome just a little bit too literally so i i completely agree matt that that element of the of the repressive apparatus in xinjiang is really dramatic and i think you know fully consistent with with an indictment in terms of the charge of, of genocide but part of a piece with the absolutely radical way I mean, for me this is one of the real puzzles about covid right this is a regime which in the name of socialist transformation and so on is shrinks from nothing but has also been you know astonishingly effective in its approach to its approach to the virus. And perhaps the common denominator is simply control, right? Perhaps the common denominator is that this really is a matter of the highest possible political stakes. To not be able to control this virus it would be a, a far more serious blow to the prestige and legitimacy of, of a regime which has those kind of pretensions than it is to, to the Trump administration in the US, which in the end just shrugs. I have two somewhat lighter ones before we jump in uh, so adam at what percentage of your total reading consumption like when it exceeds a certain amount of world war ii means you're reading too much about world war ii <laughs> yeah i think this is a question that really has haunted me throughout my life it's actually it's actually a very valid question i, I grew up as a little kid in in England initially in the early 70s, which was a which was this was before Star Wars, this was before anything else occupied our imaginary, you know, and it was only what, uh, 30 years after the war, less than 30 years after the war. So it was very, very close. And it dominated my the childhood of my parents. So I was completely immersed in World War Two, imagine all my toys, precocious early reading of, you know, tanks, books and god knows what museums the whole works the imperial war museum in london was my like place of pilgrimage and then i was transplanted to very politically correct very right on west germany heidelberg in particular in 1973 so where the war was completely (laughs) taboo and we were about to be immersed in a generational project of coming to terms with the holocaust and it really did my head in. And, you know, you could say I've never really fully recovered from that initial shock that everything that I obsessed about as a little boy suddenly became very, very dirty. Like it was not stuff that you spoke about. It turns out, of course, that West Germany in the 1970s had a military culture and you could find it. But it was literally in the same place as the pornography. It wasn't for children. And I nevertheless found my way there and rekindled that interest. And I do think... 
I, w- I think I would re- answer it in the reverse. And I, for the anniversary, uh, uh, in the middle of the COVID crisis, we came upon, after all, a highly significant anniversary of World War II. And I forced myself at that moment to go back and write a piece for for the anniversary of, of the end of the war, because it also seems now to me to be important to go back to that history and to recognise its protein impacts on the world, especially if, after all, we're now going to take seriously regimes like the Russian and the Chinese regime, for which the history of World War II is absolutely foundational. One of the things I find, I have to say, charming about reading otherwise very dry like regime material from China is that the Chinese colleagues unhesitatingly make reference to Stalingrad and the Eastern Front as a kind of litmus test of their seriousness of thinking about violence and politics and history. For them, that history of struggle and the triumph over fascism, imperial Japan and Nazi Germany is still an absolutely foundational moment. Now, of course, no doubt if you grow up on this China, in China, you're sick of it and you can't stand the references to it. But I think for us in the West, it's actually quite healthy to be reminded and particularly from that vantage point. So I kind of balance myself right now. Of course, most of the time I spend my time in the world of uh, finance and and you know the world that that Matt and I got to know each other in, and then the world now of Anthropocene and climate, political economy, and now COVID. But I do think that it is profoundly helpful and grounding to periodically return and in fact rethink some of these problems because after all, you know, for instance, the modern vaccine complex comes straight out of World War II in the form that we know it, and the great acceleration that the climate political economy people all go on about also starts in World War II and not not by accident, I think. So rethinking that history, for me, the question is how do we keep it alive? How do we avoid it becoming trite? How do we avoid it becoming a kind of comfort blanket rather than a, you know, a spur to, a spur to, to further thinking about modernity, to further thinking about modern history and and how spectacular, how violent, um, how dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it can if you be. read anything besides like histories of Dunkirk, I don't know how you can look at 1939 to 1945 and think comfort blanket, but. Um, <laughs> But I mean, people do. People yeah. manage to, right? This is the extraordinary thing that certainly for the political culture of Britain and to a degree also, and unexpected corners like the addiction of the Green New Deal left in the United States to World War One as a, you know, a positive touchstone, real arsenal of democracy kind of sentimentality mm. there. So, Adam, pick three bureaucracies in particular time spans in which you would most like to be an employee of or like a fly on the wall and embedded reporter? (laughs) What a great question. Uh, I I would like to have been in the Prussian state uh, in 1806 and to have witnessed the shock of Napoleon and the recovery and the emergence of the moment of German idealism and the arrival of Hegel in Berlin and Clausewitz. And I think that would have been a spectacular, specifically as a bureaucrat. You know, if you think about like moments of, of bureaucracy, you know, as a Brit, somebody interested in economics, you know, I want to be in the Treasury in the UK any moment that Keynes is sure. around. Um, could be during World War One, could be during World War Two, to see a bureaucracy 
that in some respects, of course, is the ideal type of a high-functioning machine. The UK Treasury in its heyday, you know, if you read the reports from Versailles, the, the Brits are effectively the people running the show because the civil service at the, in the pomp of the British Empire was a magnificent, you know, bureaucratic machine. And then to see it inspired by a genius like that. You know, I mean, you know, it's parochial, but hey, like it would have been pretty interesting to be in Bonn in 1989 and to have seen Mm. that moment from the inside it would have been pretty extraordinary to have been in the chancellor chancellor amt uh cole's chancellor amt at that moment and some of i think of those people are majorly underrated players and we know now from mary serotti's work and others you know the the end of the cold war is a multipolar business but i think as somebody who grew up in west germany it would have been fantastically interesting to track that moment from the inside. I'm ignoring the obvious, obviously, Federal Reserve 2008. But like, but 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 those were his, you know for historic moments, 1806 in Prussia, the Keynes UK Treasury moment, and then maybe in the Chancellor Amt in the Chancellery in Bonn yeah. in 89. Matt, do you want to answer this question? Oh, man. Yeah. I, I will, you know, assuming no language barriers, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I'll do as a given because I, I don't know things. Um, definitely would love to spend some time inside of MITI or alternatively the Japan's Ministry of Munitions before World War II. I think yeah, Alexander but... Hamilton's Treasury Department would also be pretty cool. Yeah, I was going to say, come yeah. on, we've got to have some heroic American moments. And then surely the New Deal, yeah. the 100 days or, you know, one of those moments would have been pretty damn good. That's I a mean, good how point. about like yeah. how about you know Lincoln's War Department when there's 20 people running the entire yeah. logistical operation? That would have been that would have been yeah. something too. Okay, you, know, you go back to the beginning, like Colbert's, you know, beyond Colbert's staff or something like that. You know, witness the birth of bureaucracy in the form right. that we now we now know it. But uh, yeah, what an excellent game! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I can top that. What would Conrad Adenauer think of today? But you know, I think. Conrad Adenauer would be, would be, he'd be having a look at Berlin and he'd be going, you know, maybe they're not going to disappoint me after all. You know, it was said that during the the worst moments of the Eurozone crisis, the, the shadows of the great old men of Christian democracy were in fact very potent in the CDU and around Merkel. And there was a real sense, Helmut Kohl went on the record in various, very undermining ways to say, you know, he had this phrase about Merkel, he called her my girl, and she's going to screw it up. You know, and one of the many things to like about Angela Merkel is just simply the aplomb with which she, obviously I have many differences with her over her policy towards Europe during the Eurozone crisis, but... You've got to admire the steadiness with which she had has resisted that kind of condescension. And in the end, you know, the in May, and it came very late, and through a variety of different pressures, Berlin has done the right thing. And it's not enough that it's not clear that it'll be enough and they need to do more. But they have responded also to the shift in German public opinion, which constantly also ask themselves this question, are we screwing this up, this European thing that we contributed so much, our state, something that our state can be proud of, the Federal Republic, are we screwing this up? And she shifted position very dramatically in May. And so I think Ardenauer will be like, you know, taking a breather. He must have been very anxious, <laughs> you'd have to say, for the last, you know, last 10 years or so. It's been pretty rough. 
going. But And of course, he would be worried about America, I think, very profoundly, but then everyone else is too. So there's nothing very distinctive about that. Is the, but, would, so who would you pluck from history to, to run the US in, starting in 2021? Well, you know, if you give me kind of like, you know, German stereotypes, I mean, I think what we would need is a Gustav Stresemann. Like, why Gustav Stresemann? Because unlike Konrad Adenauer, Gustav Stresemann was a die-in-the-wool, hardcore imperialist, you know, advocate of unlimited submarine warfare during the war. And nevertheless, realist enough after a mental breakdown in 1918 to pull himself together again and say, look, looking at the world and having visited America the way he had before World War I and coming from a business background and thinking hard about the future, we're just going to have to give this up, all this stuff that I loved, all the klimbim, all the imperialism, we're going to have to give it up. And he gives this rather striking speech to the League where he says, you know, we, we have, Europeans have spent all the blood they need to spill to demonstrate their valour. They've got nothing more to prove in that department. Let us in future seek, you know, glory through scientific competition and competition through commerce and through through sport. Now, Matt will immediately flinch at German competitiveness and the export surplus, <laughs> like which is already the fantasy in the background there. Um, though, in fact, the Weimar Republic, of course, runs trade deficits and that makes them more valuable. As You know, that makes them uh, too big to fail. But nevertheless, I think that's the kind of mindset. You know, if you were picking from the range of... German figures, if you're going to play that game, that's the sort of mindset that we need is somebody who's able to perform that kind of pivot with that kind of realism and to think through its implications. Something that I've gotten the sense of from reading the Two's trilogy of, of you know, wages and deluge and crash is one of the themes connecting them is this relationship between, you know, state power and economic and financial constraints. And one of the takeaways you can get at, at from wages and from deluge is that a lot of what we think of as sort of financial constraints can be overcome by just determined to mobilize resources in a sort of a wartime economy and that there are still real economic constraints in terms of labor shortages or access to raw materials, but conventional financial constraints like how much debt there is or whatever are, turn out to be somewhat less important. And one of the things that's interesting about crashed is that despite the knowledge that we should have had from previous experience that most governments was a notable exception of China and Russia basically acted as if they were constrained by these sort of financial circumstances. To, to, to bring things to the present, I know you're looking at the coronavirus and the, re- and the reactions now, and it seems like we've seen the reverse, where the US and Europe seem to have learned from the experience of 2008 and are being much more aggressive, the governments, in responding to the crisis, whereas China, sort of the opposite direction, is doing things the other, in, in reverse and being actually much more conservative. You're absolutely right, Matt, that that, I think, is what the the history of the long 20th century suggests, that there is this remarkable freedom in the modern economy with the resources of the modern state to mobilize financial and monetary means to do the things that we want to do, which are constrained ultimately on the real side. And in European history and in global history, the the early 20th century provided several lessons along these lines. The first experience of this type was World War I, which was a sort of learning by doing. And as I was showing in Wages of Destruction when I was looking at Nazi Germany in the 1930s, there was quite a deliberate effort, as it were, to use financial and monetary means to mobilise a real economy to the absolute limit of its potential. And to be a little trite, you could say that the lesson learned from that in the genealogy of European neoliberalism was, yes, absolutely, that potential is there. But beware, because in that potential lies the possibility of political disaster. Because Keynesians may look at this scenario and say, that's great, the problem of unemployment is solved. 
And a neoliberal will stand back and say, hang on, you know, you're being naive. What you're not understanding is that this basically unfetters politics. And sure, if you're dealing with a bunch of herbivorous social democrats, they'll take you in one direction and you'll end up with a welfare state and full employment. But if the same knowledge is in the hands of a group of nationalist militarists, what you've really provided them with is the blueprint for highly efficient mobilization of a military economy in times of peace and then a natural segue into war economics. And so deep in the heart of neoliberal thought and conservative thinking about the modern state and its potential lies a deep fear of that possibility. We tend to concretize it too much immediately by talking about inflation and so on. I think at a more abstract level, it is a genuine anxiety and fear about the potential, the explosive potential of the knowledge of this fact. I don't say, I wouldn't say that that's the only thing that defines fiscal conservatism in the 20th century and down to the Eurozone crisis, which you alluded to, Matt, the fact that the Europeans and the Americans box themselves in. There's a variety of other constraints. There are, you know, the interests of bondholders of various types at key moments. One could enrich this story enormously, but if you were looking for just a simple segue from the history of Nazi Germany and the history of the experience of the total war economies to the present, it would be by way of that backflip, like the the, re- the recognition of the danger that that kind of politics potentially poses. Now, of course, none of those risks were really present in the moment in 2009-10, and we nevertheless lurched our way back into austerity. But I do think at the heart of modern conservatism, of which I would take austerity, you know, austerian fiscal thinking as a as an example, as an example of that kind of conservatism, is a fear of freedom, is a fear of the realisation that really there isn't that much that constrains us other than the real constraints. Because when you get to actually debating the real constraints, it gets political very, very fast. And it gets, you know, it's immediately a series of very tough trade-offs. And you actually have to formulate what the purposes of your government are. And that in itself is an explosive proposition. And so in a sense to say, I will know there's limits and those limits are financial and let me show you what they are. Once you exceed 90% of GDP, public debt exceeds 90% of GDP on a slippery slope, let's stop right there. That short circuits a bunch of really profound political questions that one would probably rather avoid. And the question of what we've seen, you know, in the past sort of six, seven months is that it's really interesting how in Crashed, you described that China and to a lesser extent Russia are much more willing to push the limit, you know, in 2008, 2009 to respond to the crisis. And now it seems like it's the reverse where China in particular has been quite conservative in its response compared to the US and Europe. And I'm wondering, Hmm. what do you think might explain those differences? I think the COVID crisis, as it were, relieves the pressure somewhat because it gives everyone a clear, you know, I'd say to explain why in Europe and the United States, we've not seen the same fiscal conservatism, at least in the short run. I think part of the answer is We've learned from the experience. In fact, you can get away with doing this. The bond vigilantes are not out there terrorizing major advanced economies right now. So that restraint is not there. And furthermore, COVID, as it were, gives everyone across the political spectrum a kind of purpose around which to mobilize. Even if one doesn't take the war analogy, the total war, the war economy analogy very seriously, certainly in political terms, across the board, you have people like Modi citing Churchill. You have you have, you know, it's a very, very peculiar configuration in which, as it were, everyone can declare war on the virus. That then justifies the big push. I think the real politics of COVID fiscal expansionism are going to be played out as we're already seeing in the United States, not in the immediate moment of March and April, 
for now. And we've seen, as it were, the conventional politics of conservative fiscal uh, 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 retrenchment already entering into the discussion, both in the United States and in Europe. To come to your question about China, I agree it's very striking how different their response has been. I think it's important probably, and you folks know China far better than I do, but if you, uh, I'm a little worried that we're missing a piecemeal stimulus that is in fact quite substantial, but they haven't, as it were, announced it in one fell swoop and driven it through the apparatus they were the way they did in 08, 09. I think if you add up the various elements of piecemeal stimulus since, and you've got to remember it starts earlier in China already since February, it does actually add up to a fairly significant expansion. A lot of it is being done indirectly by way of the balance sheets of the big commercial banks. We haven't seen the big push and we haven't seen the big expansion from the People's Bank in China. And one has to speculate about why that might be. One potential response is they maybe don't think the crisis is as bad. And they have, after all, contained the virus more efficiently and effectively than any of us in the West. But then I thought Michael Pettis's argument from early on in the crisis is interesting in that they may also be more constrained. They may worry about the legacy of, you know, your diagnosis, essentially, that they are sitting on the legacy of decade plus of excessive investment. Their financial system in crucial respects is fragile. I don't know whether you saw, but but there's been this extraordinary move now to regulate the big 12 property companies. And that's going to be very interesting to see whether they can rein in the giant balance sheet of the Evergrandes of this world. And then I think the third part that, that Michael highlighted was, as it were, the fear and the memory of 2015, which is easily underestimated, I think, from a Western point of view, just quite what a shock that was with the, the sudden collapse in the stock market and the hemorrhage of over a trillion dollars in in foreign exchange reserves, which even for China is a lot of money. So I thought Michael's analysis was interesting when it came out. I think it was March or early April. And it still, I think, seems to hold up right now that we may even be in a kind of competitive conservatism where you see the People's Bank of China, or at least certain pundits around the People's Bank of China, positioning China as the conservative antipode to the feckless Fed and the ECB and the Western central banks that are doing all this QE and all these sort of you know, monetary experimentation. There's been quite a live discussion, after all, in China about QE, monetary financing and so on, where conservatism so far, as far as I know, has prevailed. So, Adam, you recently wrote a really interesting essay for the London Review of Books, in which, among other things, you argued that the U.S., lost the Cold War in Asia and that taking a long view of the past you know, 31 years or so, that it wasn't really a situation where actually American interests were advanced, even though in principle it seemed like at the time we'd won with the collapse of the USSR and the expansion of NATO. What would winning, in your view, have looked like relative you know, to what actually occurred? And you know, sort of following up on that, you know, maybe making an analogy that's a little unfair, to what extent would you know, the emergence of of China and and in an anti-democratic government have sort of inevitably led to some sort of hostile relationship in the same way that despite being allied in World War II, the USSR, the US eventually came into a sort of hostile post-war relationship. I I think it's, I do think it's worth pondering like what it is that we mean when we say, and when we anchor our understanding of late 20th, early 21st century history on the idea that the West won the Cold War. And in Europe, that has an obvious meaning to answer you know, your question, what would it look like? Well, it looks like the collapse of the Soviet Union, the disintegration of the Warsaw Pact, the incorporation of the former Warsaw Pact states into 
the EU and NATO, that's what victory looks like. And that is the result of a culmination of several decades of crisis in Eastern Europe, up to and including, you know, the martial law in Poland and so on. Um, that None of that happened in East Asia. And, you know, we were fought to a stalemate in Korea. Uh, Vietnam is a debacle. And one of the key anchors of the ultimate you know, triumph over the Soviet Union is, after all, an alliance, a live and let live alliance with, with China. And in 1989, at the moment, as it were, where the chips are falling uh, and the Warsaw Pact is disintegrating in Eastern Europe, we have Tiananmen Square. So the Communist Party basically giving notice that it intends that this regime change will not extend to them. So that's what I was gesturing towards. And in a sense, the reality that we face today in its complexity, it's in its rebarbative nature, in the fact that we are really dealing with a Communist Party that's alive and kicking, not, of course, as it were, the Communist Party of Mao, but nevertheless, a heir descendant of that party, um, is what is what we have to sort of get to grips with and come to terms with. And that, I think, does force us and ought to force us to reconsider this notion that you know, the Cold War ended with us winning. It did in Europe. It didn't in Asia. And, and Korea feels the force of that. Japan feels the force of that. And now and has felt that for some time. And the United States is now coming to terms with it, too. Last one for you, Adam. Can you talk about the transition of writing about stuff that happened, um, you know, 50, 100 years ago to doing more contemporary stuff and what advice you may have for historians to not embarrass themselves? I don't think there's any guarantee against embarrassing yourself. I think it's a very tough test and it's a risky thing to do. Um, but I would nevertheless insist that everyone, every historian ought to do it at least once as an exercise, because I think it's inescapably obvious that, you know, as Croce told us, like all history is contemporary history, we are, whether we like it or not, our views of the past and our understanding of the present is entangled. And therefore, our position in the present and our understanding of the present necessarily shapes our understanding of the past. And that is quite difficult to feel if you're dealing, you know, uh, arm's length with a period of history that's a long, very long time away. But you feel it, you know, with almost visceral intensity um, if what you're writing about is literally affected by the news that you read when you wake up in the morning. And I have to say, writing about COVID, as I'm attempting to do right now, is even more stressful and demanding in that respect than writing about 2008 was. Because when I started doing that, I was looking back from 2013. I thought, you know, there was a sort of closure narratively. We'd had whatever it takes. We, we, we had had Obama's re-election. It looked as though we kind of understood how that story had played out. And of course, over the years that followed, it became vastly more complex. The risks are absolutely real. The, the tension that it generates is real. But for me, it's been extraordinarily um, productive of just reflection and insight. I, doesn't think it's, I don't think it has made me any less a historian because what I am trying to do is to grasp the present as history as it happens, which after all is, is what we claim that it is or will become. Um, it is involved with risks, and I'm not going to say that, you know, um, I feel that there's any way of escaping that. And for that reason, I think it's also a, a test of judgment. And I think you embarrass yourself if you display poor intellectual judgment. 
um, and in a sense, bad taste and simplistic thinking. And to that extent, it's a very severe test because it becomes very obvious very quickly to many people that that's what you're manifesting. And for me, something like Twitter is an even more speeded up version of this because what that allows me to do is it's almost a daily sounding board on what a bunch of incredibly smart people, all with their distinctive perspectives, sometimes with their own interests, are judging to be relevant and interesting uh, on any given day. And you are basically testing yourself whether you can produce a credible or thought-provoking or interesting, very compact statement about whatever graph shows up, whatever headline is coming out, and whether you can manage the psychological stresses and tensions and emotions and questions really of moral and almost ethical judgment that arise from that. And so for me, it's become very consuming because that's the standard that I hold myself to is that kind of global seminar on what that group of people think is important about the world at that moment. And whether one can, the standard I hold myself to is whether or not I can make a, you know, a useful and hopefully positive and not, you know, destructive or negative contribution to that collective process of thinking which is what I think good history does as well, but that the seamless connection between commentary, contemporary history writing, and that literally hourly kind of referendum on what counts and why it counts and what we should think about it is really... It's, I think once you commit yourself to it, it becomes very difficult to detach yourself from. Everything else feels very slow by comparison. And that doesn't for a second mean that you should abandon perspective or that, you know, that your distinctive contribution isn't perhaps remembering rather more acutely than other people the political economy of the Paul Volcker moment in the 1970s or that swap lines actually needed to be used in the 1960s or, you know, that the Chinese Republic's history goes back to goes back to World War One, and, you know, Chinese, uh, China, China's struggle with Japanese nationalism has its origins at that moment. You know, that is something that you as a historian can continuously feed in. But the, the contact to the immediate conversation is what I think is so fascinating. Adam and Matt, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. We got mama, turn your lamp down low. Don't you want to go? They take me a fair brown, 
may take one or two more. Big 80 left Savannah, Blondie did not stop. You ought to saw that color fine when when he got them ball of hot. You can reach over in the corner, mama, and hand me my traveling shoe. You know by that I've got them stays for blue. Mama, sister got them, auntie got them, brother got them, friend got them, I got them. I woke up this morning, we had them stays for blue. I looked over in the corner, grandma and grandpa had them too. 